Hello. Before you start this episode of The Game Changes, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about our new documentary, Abby Ward, A Bump in the Road, which explores the challenges faced by professional female athletes and all working mothers. It follows the remarkable journey of an England rugby player as she battles back to the professional game just 17 weeks after the birth of her baby and then on to secure her place in England's Six Nations squad for 2024. The documentary is free to watch in the UK on ITVX or globally on Rugby Pass TV. And don't forget that our other documentary, Game On! The Unstoppable Rise of Women's Sport, is still available to watch on Netflix in the UK. Now it's time for the Game Changers. Hello and welcome to the Game Changers. I'm Sue Anstis and this is the podcast where you'll hear from trailblazing women in sport. What can we learn from their journeys as we explore some of the key issues around equality in sport and beyond? Before I introduce my guest today, I'd like to say a really big thank you to our partners, Sport England, who support the Game Changers through a National Lottery Award. My guest today is Emma Mitchell. With an international rugby career spanning 15 years, Emma is Red Rose number 19, who won 57 caps for England and Great Britain. Emma competed in four World Cups, with the 1994 World Cup being her career highlight. Following her retirement in 2002, she went on to coach at club, regional and international level in the USA, Canada and in the UK. In 2007, Emma joined the English Institute of Sport as a performance lifestyle coach, supporting over 200 elite GB hockey athletes and coaches over four Olympic cycles. Over the past 10 years, she's also been involved in a number of coach development programs, providing mentoring support to coaches in tennis, squash, sailing, hockey, rugby, swimming, boxing and football. There's so much to explore in talking to you, Emma, but I wonder if we can begin where our paths first crossed at Loughborough University back in the 80s. So what were you studying there at the time and how did you come to find rugby? Thank you, Sue. Thank you for the welcome. Very flattering. Yes. So 1987, I studied, I I started at Loughborough on a joint honours degree, history and sports science. And within about two weeks, I switched to just single honours history. I found that I was running from lecture to seminar to lecture to practice to all the rest of it. And so I, I switched to single honours history. I immediately got about 15 hours back in my week and, yeah, played sport. And at that point, it was I was a discus thrower, a fairly poor discus thrower, also a hockey player. And I went along to the Freshers' Trials, got into that team, and we played the third team. That was our training evening was Freshers against the third team. And little did I know at the time, but quite a few of that third team were also in the rugby team. So after training one evening, we ended up in the, the student union bar and a few of them came over. Amanda Bennett, Lisa Burgess, names that you'll know. Uh, and they approached they approached four of us who were fresh as hockey players. So it was myself, Jane, my twin sister, uh, Chris Gurney and Claire Willett, as she was at the time, now Claire Vivian. Um, and they said, we've been watching you for, we think you might quite like to give rugby a go. And we said, all right then. So we did. We went along to the next um, training session. Uh, we'll, we'll put in a line. And I remember Amanda Bennett went along the line and was just sort of basically picking out what, just from your shape and height and so on, what position you'd be. And I think Jane and I were, I did, well, we are identical twins. And so we looked very similar. We're at different ends of the line. But Amanda went along and forward, back, back, back came to me back, she went on further, Jane forward. So for the first few years of our careers, I was put in the backs, Jane was in the forwards. Um, and that, that then changed a little bit later for Jane. But the four of us, Chris, Claire, Jane and I, all went on to play for England within the first, well, within a year or two of being approached wow. post-hockey session. So that's quite a nice story in there. I love that. I love that selection <laughs> process of the uh, England squad. And actually, having been, yeah, spent many hours in the JC bar myself, I can see a picture of, of that yeah. too. 
And what was it about rugby? Having been a hockey player at the time, what was it about rugby that you loved that was, was different to what you'd experienced in the past? I love a team sport. Within athletics, I was, a again, a very poor sprinter and a discus thrower. So there was something about speed and strength that appealed to me. Oh, I just fell in love with the sport. It seemed like it was the best fit for me as a young athlete, a sort of game of physical chess in a way, always having to problem solve what's in front of you and how all 15 of you can best work together to to lead to the result that you want. So, yeah, it, it, it was a, a perfect match, really. What happened was I, I started off playing in the centre, but after a year or so was moved to scrum half. And a lot of my discus training well, was really relevant to, you know, a scrum half pass because so much of it is power from your legs and the twist and how you wind up. So that was a, a real benefit to me. And Jim Greenwood was my coach at that time as well. So he would, would keep myself and Amanda Bennett on after training and say, right, let's just do a little bit of work on, on your passing, Emma, and how the two of you communicate with each other and make decisions. And we'd then go away and, and practice that more and more and more. So I, I got really good input right from the start. So I didn't, didn't really pick up too many bad habits. I'm going to move on to talk about Jim Greenwood because he was my personal tutor too. And I know we can both share a huge admiration for him and, and what he did at Loughborough. I was going to reflect on the fact that Bird and Ben never approached <laughs> me as a volleyball player to say they thought I'd make a good rugby player. I was there with them all and I was like, how did I miss out on that opportunity? Maybe they, they knew best. Uh, but yeah, Jim Greenwood, a legend of the game. And, you know, clearly, I imagine, had a huge influence on your love of rugby and, you know, future within the game. Yeah, he was, he was just amazing. I mean, an absolutely inspirational man and an incredibly talented coach. His philosophy for playing the game really appealed to me. So that, that again, sort of was, was, was a part of it. And just his, um, how he treated each of us. He, he, he got to know you as a person as well as a player. And he would spend quality time with, with each of us to sort of say, this is what I think you need to work on. This is how we're going to go about it. And you, you just wanted to go and, and, and do it for yourself, but also for him. Um, so he was a, a really important role model for me in in those early years of playing. And a few decades on, when I started to coach and went on to some, some coach development programs and so on, and would be asked, who who's the coach that, you know, inspired you the most and why? Jim would be the person that I would choose. And reflecting back now, he's what we might now call a male ally of the women's game. But I wonder what was the attitude generally of the men's rugby community to the women's game as it grew and thrived in the 80s? So at at Loughborough, with the the student population, it was very supportive. But once we graduated from Loughborough and were actually going out to try and play in a club, in those days there were only a, a handful of clubs across the country. So part of the challenge then was about going and trying to find a club where you could set up a women's section. So again, four of us moved to Kent and set up a side in um, Gillingham, Gillingham and Corians, And we approached the club there. We had, I think there was four of us. We set up a come and try it day and got a few others along to help. We arranged for the, it was the Bromley side in in southeast London, Kent, to come down and play us. We put on a demonstration. I think a lot of the local rugby population were just curious. And I think there were probably no more than about a dozen that might have turned up to watch. But we did find an army officer who was keen to coach us. So that that was good. But yeah, the attitudes were, I'd say in many ways, this isn't a game for women. Women shouldn't be allowed to play rugby. And we had to break down a lot of that and and, and do it in a very diplomatic way <laughs> um, because that was really the way to actually achieve what we wanted. And what we wanted more than anything was just to be able to continue to play. So that was just therefore being trying to be very, very nice, very polite and if we could be charming and just ask can we can we come this is we think we'll bring in extra money through the bar you know it'd be another game that's being played it'll help with the the community feel of the club those are all sort of elements to the proposal that clubs liked 
I was one of the founder members at Gillingham and Corians, but then started work in London, so moved to London. And that's where a group of us again got together and decided it was time to try and set up another club within London. And at, at that point, there was Richmond in southwest London, had been Finchley previously, but they had moved. And then there was Wasps, obviously, in at that point, Wembley, but you know, later on again, moved a little bit further around as well. So a lot of us were living in East and Northeast London uh, and Saracen's men were about to come back into the, the premiership as it was then. And so we approached Saracen's to, to try and set up a club there. And there was nine of us founder members for Saracen's. One of the group worked for a chap called John Hegadon. And he was one of these allies advocates who was ahead of his time and really understood sort of the value of women playing and, and just encouraged us to put forward a proposal to the club committee. We did that. Sam Robson, you know, she wrote brilliant proposal, um, sent it off to the committee to be considered. And John Hegadon went along to the next committee meeting uh, and looked at the agenda for women's proposal and it wasn't there. So after the meeting, he he got in touch with, with Sam and I think was a bit frustrated and said, you know, that it, the item wasn't on the agenda. We weren't asked to discuss it. It turns out that the, the secretary at the time had opened the proposal, but just thought, well, women shouldn't be playing rugby, torn it up, put it in the bin. Now, if if we didn't have John on the committee and Sam wasn't able to reassure him that we had sent the proposal in, we probably would have just thought, well, that's it. Let's try somewhere else. But actually, we were then invited to, again, submit it again, and Sam went in and actually presented the proposal. Uh, And the committee came back to us and they said, we would love you to set up a women's section. Uh, We have three conditions. One is that you, you will take on running the club shop on Saturday and Sunday morning, so selling socks and shorts and all the rest of it to the mainly the mini section. Two, when we have men's games and we're very busy, we'd like some help with manning the gates, running the bar, manning the burger van, that sort of thing. And three, two or three times a year, we'll have a vice president's lunch and we'd like you to supply the, the waitressing staff. <laughs> From the women's section. So back to what I said earlier about we were just willing to be polite and charming and just get what we want. We said, brilliant. Yes, absolutely. To all three. We're in. We're in. And once we were in, we were able to, you know, demonstrate a little bit more about what we could bring. And we did we did run the shop. We did help with the games. And we were just very much there in a part of the club. And we got we started to win a lot of supporters and friends within the wider club. I can't really see you you and Maggie waitressing at the at a dinner. By the time Maggie was playing, um, and she joined as a, gosh, 13, 14-year-old, but by the time she was playing, we'd gone beyond that. And I think we'd proven that we perhaps didn't need to do that. We did it for a few years. What was lovely was about 20 years on, Amanda Bennett, Lisa Burgess, myself and Katie Ball were all made honorary vice presidents so we were invited to one of these lunches and the president of the club at the time was lee adamson who'd also been a coach of the women's section for about 10 years and he told this story to all of the vice presidents who were present and um he he finished the story by saying so it gives me enormous pleasure to wait on these four today and look after them so it sort of came a really lovely full circle that is so lovely. That is so lovely. And and such a successful club you then went on to be in terms of a, a real kind of winning club. So tell us about that, the kind of success of Saracens. Yeah, so, so Saracens established in 1989 um, and we started in the second division but immediately won promotion to the first. Um, and by 91, we were winning what was then called the treble, so the league, the cup and the sevens competition, which was was very difficult to do. We started off, we had nine founder members, but quickly built the size of the squad so that we could run a first and a second team. And without really knowing it at the time, but we, we, and I learned so much more about it now in the work that I do, but the whole cultural element to the club in terms of what we were about as a group of women and how we wanted the club to feel as an environment for anyone who came in, 
I think was was really important. We're very welcoming. Was anyone welcome, no matter what what standard they were, what you know what they've done previously, and we just were trying to get everyone to enjoy the game. And talking to some of those early players who did come along and, and give it a try, that was something that they 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 felt was so important because they they did feel as though they were just there to learn, they you know have fun. Um, and then, you know, reach whatever potential they, they were able to reach. So we're very proud of Saracens um, and, and, you know, where they are now too. You know, it's sort of now over 30 years and, you know, they continue to be a, an incredible force in, in the women's game within England, but within the world. There's not many clubs that could probably uh, equal their success both on and, and off the field. That's so true, isn't it? So I hope you take time to reflect and think about, I guess, those foundations that have gone on to create great club players, but then, you know, international players too, as we look out to New Zealand and, you know, so many of those in the Red Roses squad coming through Saracens. You you mentioned yourself that you progress very quickly in terms of the England uh, system itself. So what are your memories of your, your first cap for England? Oh, my, well, my first cap was in April 1988, and it was against Wales in Newport. We stayed in a youth hostel because at that point we, we just didn't really have, well, we didn't have any money. We were paying for ourselves, and that was the most affordable accommodation. The youth hostel we were in, we, we had to do some duties the morning of the game before we left. The forwards were given, right, you, you can wash up all the breakfast stuff. The backs were given tidy up the dorms. and. Karen and I were given the, the toilet block to go and clean. But we had to be out at 10 o'clock and the game wasn't until 2.30 or 3. So we had that whole, I don't know, five hours to just go and spend some time somewhere. It was pouring with rain. So we, we went to a park thinking, well, at least we can just be out, stretch our legs. And, but it, it rained quite heavily. So we just ended up sat, sat in our cars for the few hours before being able to get to the 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 club and then get going I don't remember the score I know that we won um, and I know that I scored a try I can just remember being incredibly proud and yeah that was the first of, of many appearances and lots of wonderful memories Fabulous, fabulous stuff. And as I said, you were a Red Rose, number 19, went on to gain 52 England caps and five caps for Great Britain at sevens. Uh, but there was long before any notion of, of professional contracts. So you then continued to play for England, but to work full time while you were playing. So how did you manage to, to balance those two careers? Yes, I, so I worked full time for a company called Prentice Hall. My sales manager um, was a big rugby fan. So I don't know if that helped with my CV standing out for the actual interview process. She certainly was someone who valued what sport could do in terms of developing characteristics that would help in a, in a work situation. And I just had to be really organized. I was what was called a field sales editor, which was really a sales rep. And I would go around to universities in London and the southeast of England and meet lecturers and talk to them about the, the textbooks that we had. So it would involve traveling anywhere in Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex, Kent, and then East London. So each day I'd go somewhere different um, and I'd have to build my training into that. So it usually meant that my training would be in the evening once I got back and that would be at Walthamstow Track where we'd meet up and we'd do a few sort of sprint drills or sprint sessions or in the gym for some weight sessions. And then we'd have club training twice a week. So it meant the days were quite long, usually early start to travel to wherever I was going. Quite a lot of walking around campus with a heavy bag of sales manuals and then get home and whatever training was needed. And, and at the end of that, home at half past nine, ten try and have a bit of food so it wasn't ideal in that regard but again we just wanted to play and we wanted to do whatever we we could do to become the best we could be so that involved we just make it work as my career progressed I was very lucky that the companies that I worked for within publishing they supported my rugby element and would write into the contract that I could have my international time as paid leave and Addison Wesley actually also became one of the first sponsors of the England team in the late 90s. 
Um, so they, they, they saw how much commitment went in and then how we were also paying our way. And so they, you know, and it wasn't a big amount of money, but well, at the time it was, it was £10,000. So, and they wanted it to just go to the players or to help alleviate some of the costs that were involved. Yeah, I'd say very forward thinking, um, the, the employers that I worked for at the time. It's interesting, isn't it? I was thinking even in recently talking to Shauna Brown and how British Gas supported her career. And I spoke to Donna Fraser about her work, you know, with a company that supported her through training. I wonder whether there's almost an opportunity to do something to highlight those forward thinking companies that almost don't always get the shout out because they're just the employers of young athletes. But actually it is their forward thinking and their openness that enables those athletes to function and, and have success it's important isn't it really important and it's 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 employers who just think a little bit more creatively about how they're going to recruit talent and the the amount of loyalty i felt for yeah. prentice hall addison wesley longman and and then thompson learning was enormous and it meant that i you know did everything i could to deliver the best i could work-wise and stay with them for a long career so yeah no i, t- I, I totally agree so and it's something that sort of feeds into the work I do now with the hockey squad. Just looking back in terms of the playing and representing England and what we see now, and I was very lucky to be at at Bristol for that game ahead of the um, World Cup before the Red Roses went out. There was 12,000 on a Wednesday evening in Bristol watching them, amazing numbers. So reflecting back to where you were in terms of those international games, not necessarily that first one in Newport, but, but what kind of numbers were you having coming to watch the games? What was the support like? And then also... In terms of media coverage, were people writing about the games? What was the situation like as you progressed through your England career? Yeah, so the early days, the crowds were were fairly small. It would be a few hundred, maybe up to a thousand or so. That would probably be it. Depending on where the game was, it would usually be friends and family and then a few local curious rugby folk. As it moved on, certainly the 94 World Cup final, we had, I think it was three or 4,000 at that. That was a much bigger crowd. That was brilliant. And again, Edinburgh, quite a rugby city. So there was a lot more than just the friends and family audience. In terms of the, the media coverage, again, you had a few people who were probably a bit, bit ahead of their time and would write very much about the rugby. So the likes of, likes of Stephen Jones, the Sunday Times, and very supportive of the women's game. And we loved to see any coverage that was about the game because you wanted to know what like an expert rugby correspondent thought. But I'm, I'm afraid probably the majority of the coverage, and I've got 33 scrapbooks in the loft that attest to this, but the majority of it was women playing rugby as a bit of a no- novelty, a bit of a curiosity thing. So you'd have the, the feature articles with us dressed in our kit and covered in mud and then in dresses and ball gowns and all that sort of stuff. And, the you know, the headlines about, you know, the hooker or whatever it would be. And the you sort of felt that in a way some of that coverage was at least getting the game some publicity, but there were also some articles that were just, you know, dreadful. And you just would end up thinking, well, we're not going to speak to that particular paper again. We became a bit more astute in terms of this is actually a magazine piece. We would ask a bit more about what they were wanting to do rather than just say, yes, come along for the day. Come bring the photographer, do, you know, and then you, you have no control over what was going on. By the time I re- retired in 2002, it, it was much, much better. Although, I mean, I think you'll agree with this. It, it, it just doesn't happen as quickly as you want it to. And you still see that there's change still to come that we know will happen, but it, it never quite happens at the pace you feel it, it should be happening at. I was lucky. I was at the uh, Rugby Writers Awards this year and Jill Burns gave an extraordinary speech, actually. But she shared some of those headlines around that time. And it was, you know, it's kind of like laughable, but actually it's not. Because I was thinking of you as the these amazing elite athletes. Um, as you say, it's like almost like how that undermined what you were doing, what you were achieving at the time. So it must be, you know, now to see the headlines now that we see and the coverage and the footage, uh, it's fabulous to feel that you've made that path for those athletes to be experiencing that today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've, we've been on a journey with it and certainly coming out the other end. And, and sometimes it's it's hard to imagine. And what, what, what some of the current players, when they see some of those, those articles or some of the headlines, they are shocked and horrified 
even the story about setting up Saracens and the three conditions, um, you know, that's what, like, what, what, what? You would, you know, you, you were vice captain and you were press and publicity secretary and you were chair and you, you know, you had to do all that. <laughs> and, and again, our answer would be, Yes, but we were doing it because that's what we needed to do in order to play the game that we loved. No, it's fascinating. And, you're, and I think it's good that they do hear that, that we're aware of that and they do hear and see that. So you also captained England and you played in four World Cups. So how does it feel to be now watching it all unfold uh, in New Zealand? Does it take you right back to your own experiences? I feel incredibly proud watching the team play. Just in the last couple of weeks, we were able to make sure that all of the red roses from Karen Almond at number one all the way up to it's around 250 something up to the current group that that everyone knew their red rose number. Um, Carol Isherwood, who's out uh, in New Zealand, was pulling together some good luck messages from the former red roses and people sent photos and messages and everyone was signing off with their red rose number. And that is such a simple thing but it's provided this lovely golden thread through the generations and a real connection to the current group. Um, and, and I think there's just some, some sort of powerful almost legacy that is going on within that. And that current squad are learning more about those very early days. And what was lovely seeing some of the photos from the game against France on Saturday was that Karen Armand met some of the group and they knew who she was um, and knew she was Red Rose number one and our, our captain in 91 and 94 and led the, the, that side to, to victory in 94. So I feel incredible, incredibly proud now. I remember joking with Bernsey, but, you know, the, the term pioneer makes you feel incredibly old. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in many ways, it's very true because of when you now look back at where we started and what the game has achieved and how it's progressing, but also what the future looks like and how amazing it, it's going to be. I mean, 2025 and the next World Cup being here is so exciting. You know, the level of, of um, ability on, on display at the moment at the World Cup and where that's going to be in, in three years' time with so many of the unions now starting to offer professional contracts to their players. It's just... Yeah, it's so exciting. So, yeah, having played some small part in that, you know, a few decades ago makes me incredibly, incredibly proud and feel incredibly connected to the group. Yeah, fantastic. And rightly so, rightly so. I did actually check with Sue Day when I was preparing this interview. I said, where, I've been Googling everywhere on the internet. Where, where can I find this list of the red roses? How can I phrase it? And then she said, yeah, you were number 19, uh, but the list isn't anywhere yet. She said, we worked hard to get the list together, but it doesn't exist. She said, I think that's the next step is putting it out there. So I felt better that I'd spent all that time trying to find it. Why could I not find it? So uh, not been published yet. And I love that Poppy Cleal had put on her boots and now of the 94 and 2014 uh, squad yeah. on her boots that was a lovely really lovely touch as you say that kind of thread through uh, on, on each other's shoulders as it were on the shoulders of women that went before absolutely yeah lovely lovely touch from Poppy and yeah you could see the boots as well when she was when she came on the pitch so yeah yeah really <laughs> lovely, lovely touch so you retired from playing but you didn't leave the sport uh, how did coaching then become a, a part of your life Right, so I, I retired internationally in 2002 and focused on my, what, my publishing career at the time I was a publishing director in London. As soon as rugby had gone as a, as a sort of international sport for me, family became much more important. My twin sister, Jane, who I played with 21 times for England, she lives in California. And we had talked about, might we end up living in the same place again for a little while. Mm. So through the company she worked for, I was offered a job out in California. So I moved out there in 2003. And just as Jane and I played our first year for Loughborough together, we then 20 years on played our last year together for the Berkeley All Blues out in California. We finished as club champions in the USA, which was quite a challenging feat because you you would play back to back games out there because of the distance traveled and all the rest of it. So anyway, we, we, we finished, we, we won, I retired, Jane retired, and I then looked to move into coaching. Our coach at, at the Berkeley All Blues was a, another wonderful coach and woman called Kathy Flores. 
and I became her assistant coach the following season and looked after the back. So she'd already been a friend of some 30 years at that point. And uh, um, we were competitors against each other, England and USA, but I got to know her over the years with various matches and tours and all the rest of it. So I, I was her assistant coach from 2004 until I came back to London in 2006. And then Amanda Bennett picked up the phone and said, would you like to come and help me at Saracens? She was head coach at Saracens then. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, definitely. And actually at that point, Sue, I, my my career goal was actually to go on and to coach, um, try and coach professionally and, and try and coach England. So that that was the, where I was focused. And the, the job I got with Great Britain Hockey and the English Institute of Sport was part-time. And I thought that will bring in some income. And then I can focus on developing my my coaching. So I came back and I took on Saracens. I also took on the Wooden Spoon was starting up with a sevens team. Um, And I was approached by John Dewhurst and Susie Appleby was involved in that and asked to coach there. So I did that. I was also asked to coach the Nomads, so Fiona Stockley. Um, Then it was the Nomads obviously gone on to now become the Barbarians. And with hindsight now, I think I probably took on a bit too much (laughs) because all of these coaching roles were voluntary. I'd get a sessional fee at Saracens, but it was, I mean, it was, you know, £20 a session, something like that. It wasn't an income. And what what I found was the role I had with Great Britain Hockey, that was also a coaching role, but coaching the person that in a way became um, more of my focus uh, so I I, I I did coach within rugby but up until 2010 2011 and then I started to step away and focus more on my professional coaching career and I don't ever like having regrets I think everything takes you down a route of one or the other but do you uh, kind of reflect or you look at Giselle's career Giselle Mather who you play with as a teammate and what she's gone on to coach and you know others that are now moving in that level is it too late for you to go back and get that England role now would you coach again or, or do you reflect that um it's something that that might have had more appeal I I don't think I would coach again Sue just because I've been away from the game and offer the grass for too long and, and the game has has progressed. Uh, so I think it would take quite a bit to get back involved. We'll see. I If I did do anything, it may just be at grassroots level, you know, with a group of girls or boys, or but, you know, both. Uh, so I don't know. That might happen in the future when I'm not working and, you know, moving more towards retirement. But what, what has been lovely is I've, I've had some involvement with the RFU in the last year or so as a consultant. So I've been able to come back in and and look at what's going on within the domestic game and the direction that they're going in and pull on some of the experience that I've got from the 15 years with, with a very successful Olympic team sport and make a few suggestions in there. So that, that's been an interesting way to be back involved, but not on the training pitch with my boots on coaching. And I know for me, many of my lifelong friends are women that I've played sport with over the years. And I sense from this conversation that the rugby family is still very much a part of your life. Is, is that the case? Very much so. My, my best friends have all come from that rugby family. My wife, Sarah, and I got, got married nearly 10 years ago now. And I, we had the sort of, you know, the rugby photo and I think there was something like 40 of the 80 guests, if not slightly more, were rugby family, including my little nephew, who by then had started playing. And, you know, so that that, that was brilliant. But, yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the friendships that, that you develop from being on that rugby pitch together and the nature of the sport as well, because it is so physical, you, you develop incredibly strong bonds. And it's a very social sport too so how you get to know each other after the game and 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 then how you train together and just look out for each other um it's something extraordinary and that's still the case uh today which is which is brilliant and the club setting particularly i'd say is where players within the international setup as you know that can be quite a roller coaster at times with non-selection or injury and what we all found was going back to saracens that was where you just knew you were going to be sort of really looked after and loved and valued and you'd get through some of the bumps a little bit 
better because of that. You're sensing. I do feel I missed out on not playing. I will have a word with uh, Lisa Burgess, Amanda Bennett at some point. I'd like to move on to your role at the EIS, so Performance Lifestyle Advisor. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that role is, what, what you do in that role? So the Performance Lifestyle role is, is, is about looking after the person, so really prioritising the, the person who is the athlete. Um, we've got six main pillars that we focus on, uh, career development, transitions, financial health, education, learning and development, and mental health and well-being. And my work just covers all of those areas. I'd, I'd say the ones where I probably have more of a focus, a career development, the hockey group are incredibly ambitious off the pitch as well as on it. A lot of them want to develop careers while they're on the programme so that that what's next anxiety isn't something that's impacting them, but also so that they're, they're set up and in a really good place for the future and they value having something that's a very positive distraction away, away from the performance environment. Transitions, so athletes coming onto the programme, working through significant injury or when they retire or step away from the programme after no longer being a part of the squad. So those two are the biggest areas, along with, I'd say, well-being and, and mental health. It can be anything, Sue. And it, over the last 15 years, as you can imagine, if you've got a group of, at the moment, it's 33 women, it was, I was looking after the men and the women, so I'd have about 65 athletes on my caseload. Now, they can come through the door with any, anything, and it has been, literally, <laughs> anything. And it's being in a position where you can help um, the how of what we do is very much coaching and mentoring. So the role used to have a, an advisor part to the role. That was it was was performance lifestyle advisor. It's now performance lifestyle practitioner and coach because the how is not to give advice. It's actually to, to help the person find the answer themselves. So a lot of good coaching skills come into play. So good questioning, very good listening, helping them figure out what it is they need to do and where they need to go. Sometimes it, it can be very transactional because it's about how do I sit an exam abroad or how do I, you know, and that, that, that's a little bit different. But, but for some of that work in the career development or managing transition space, it's more about helping them on their journey and helping them figure out who they want to be and how they want to plan for the future. I was reflecting um, as I prepared for this interview that you and I reconnected back in 2011 when uh, you were exploring work experience opportunities, exactly that, for the England yeah. hockey players. And as a result, Kate Richardson-Walsh came to work with us at Promote PR. And while she was working for us, the Women's Sport Trust approached her to be patron of the new charity. And I went with her to the first meeting, met Tammy and Joe, and ended up as a founding trustee of the charity. So 10 years later, the rest is history. But thank you for that, instigating that. That's how those things start and, and get moving isn't it too you're very welcome sue and thank you for being one of those employers who thought outside the box and was willing to be a little bit flexible and and say okay come yeah come and work and do a little bit of part-time work and then emily defond another few Indeed. years on, on from there and and as you know i would imagine from both of them that they were Incredible. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? I said that earlier. I wasn't thinking of my own agency <laughs> at the time as one of those companies. When I said that, I really hadn't thought that at all. But yeah, I guess in the way we, we have done too. You talked about those different pillars, those six pillars. Have they changed over the time of your doing this role and, and, and the importance of careers and that transition out? Or yeah. has it always been that you've looked across all those elements? No, they've developed. They've definitely evolved. And I'd say when I started 15 years ago, it was more career and education were the two main elements. So more of a focus on transitions has certainly developed um, and how important the whole athlete identity piece is within that. Uh, and then linked to that, mental health and well-being, which is, is you know, it, slowly and slowly we're chinking away at the, the stigma that's associated with, with mental health and, and focusing more on what, what it takes to, to have positive well-being. And the financial one as well, we have athletes who are on programme for often more than a decade and looking after sort of their financial planning in terms of whether they're considering pensions, because obviously the, the lottery award is a, is a grant. That means there's no pension contribution. A number of them have been able to save up and, and look to buy their own flat or house for mortgages 
other other sort of savings. So all of that help we look to give as well. And learning and development can be literally anything. Again, what we find is the athlete who's curious and will want to go and sort of just discover how they might, what they might learn in a, say, athlete to entrepreneur program, something like that. What they learn about themselves can often then benefit them when they come back into the performance environment. So it, 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 a big part of it is knowing that experiences away from the hockey pitch, the swimming pool, the track, the, the rowing lake can benefit the person and help them develop, help them have other networks that aren't just within the sport, but that then value them as, as a person and, as I say, help with developing other identities. Uh, because we tend to find that those athletes who have you know, very much got an exclusive athletic identity and, and who've been on program for a long, long time, those are the ones that quite often have the most challenging transitions away from the sport because they're almost having to go through a process of bereavement to lose that athlete identity and start to work out, okay, who am I? Who am I now that I've stopped you know, my international sporting career and what do I want to be with? Where's my purpose? If we've done some work with the athlete while they're on programme, it can still be a challenging transition, but you've got more that's probably going to help pull them forward. And how do you ever not let them go? But I remember I interviewed Kate Richard Morse for the very first uh, series of The Game Changers and she talked about you then and that even though coming out of the sport, she would still message you and you'd still be supportive and so on. So I feel like yeah. you must have hundreds of former players that still come to you for support. I, I, I try and stay in touch with all of them because they're, they're wonderful people and I'm, I'm really interested in, in their careers and how they're progressing. What has also happened, and again, this is another element of, I'd say, of team sport, good team sport, is that they really want to give back and they also quite often want to help. And because they are incredible people, they tend to go on and be very successful in whatever career they, they choose to pursue. And quite often I've then been able to say, I've got someone now in the current squad who's interested in that career area. Would you have a a call with them, have a coffee with them, tell them about your journey. And they're always wanting to help. We're supposed to keep our support for well, six to 12 months, but I, and it's not, I'm doing loads of extra work there, but just keeping that, those connections and those relationships going tend to mean that there's other benefits for the, the current group as well, as well as me just liking them. So, yeah. Yeah, fabulous people. Why would you? Why would you not? Indeed. And I just obviously we've only got so long to talk about your, but your highlights from all that time at the EIS, especially with hockey and the hockey women and all that they've achieved. So to reflect on, oh, you know, how many? One or two of those. What's that like for you, having been behind the scenes and and, and know those women so well? We we see hockey on the television, usually the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games. That's when we see it. And what we don't see as a general public is the hard, incredible amount of hard work that goes on on the, the training pitch and in the gym at, at Bisham. And then all of those personal stories that are sort of woven into that. And that group that won gold in Rio, the, the 16 that stood on the, the podium that, that received the gold medals, but there were another three traveling reserves with them. And then there was a wider training squad that was actually 31 in number. So there's a number who were left at home who had done exactly the same amount of training and were a part of that achievement, but just not on the podium. So when I saw the group get on the podium and scream the house down, I felt immense pride for all that they'd done and all they'd achieved and some of the stories behind you know, Sam Quek, third Olympic Games, previous two not selected, third one selected. And, you know, the resilience to be able to continue and come back after disappointment for not being selected for Beijing, but then also for London. Incredible. And, you know, so you sort of know that extra little bit of the story too. And similarly with the Commonwealth Games squad, the England squad this summer, the vision that the group created back in 2015 is, is be the difference create history, inspire the future. And knowing that that group hadn't won Commonwealth Games gold and they'd gone on and achieved it as a new England group together, there's a, a significant number of new athletes in the group. Again, very proud, knowing the meaning that it, it, it has for them and for the sport. 
You mentioned the work that you're now doing with the RFU and I am interested to know what professional sports now for women in terms of rugby and football can learn from those Olympic sports where athletes have been on funded programmes for for many years. What are the key learnings that you think you're able to bring into to rugby? I think that the having gone around the, the domestic clubs within the Premiership and and talked to the directors of rugby or the head coaches with Charlie Hayter about the programmes that were in place, across the board, pretty much, the programmes are already very professional in nature in terms of the number of coaches, quality of coaches, sports science and medicine support. The bit that I think is still to come, and it, it, it's there already in some of the clubs, but is the more holistic approach to supporting the player. And for me, that support is most successful if it's within the staff team and it's in the performance environment. So rather than it being that you go somewhere else to get this, it's that, no, this this person is sat next to the head coach in the meetings, is watching the training and is there for a meeting afterwards, but is there and gets to know the person really well so that depending on where their journey takes them, the different ups and downs they may have, there's already an established and trusted relationship. That's a little bit of what I, I've sort of tried to share with the RFU. I think the game, the amount of training that the domestic players do in that club environment is already very close to what would be professional. The challenge you've got is a lot of those individuals are already working full-time as well. So, the players with international contracts are in a position where they're full-time rugby players. Some of them are also combining work or, or studies, but a lot of the club players are having to do, not unlike what I was talking about earlier, but you know, train at the end of the day or very early in the morning or take an extended lunch break and train, get to the club for four or five o'clock and then go through till nine, ten. And that's the bit that probably needs to be looked at and and where possible, a shift made so that training is a little bit earlier in the day. Employers who are understanding and supportive can be a bit more flexible with what they want um, from that employee. And then you've got more of a dual aspiration approach to the professional game. It's tricky though, isn't it? Because you've got coaches that want the very best squad to win. And I know I've myself spoken to a few athletes that are not struggling in that environment, but obviously if you've got a career and suddenly training is when you are working, uh, you know, but we can understand the coach wants to, to win the league, etc. It's a, a challenging time to get that balance right, isn't it, for player and for team? It is, Sue, and I'd, I'd say that the, the amount of training time within the Great Britain hockey programme and, and sort of clubs within rugby is, is not dissimilar in terms of number of pitch sessions and strength and conditioning sessions and so on. There's still time in the week to do other things. There definitely is. Professional rugby is not a nine-to-five, 40-hour week sport. You can't do it. So, yes, you can spend a lot of time on some of the training and then obviously all that you're doing to prepare nutrition-wise, all the rest of it. But all of those players are going to need something beyond sport. The nature of the sport also means that some careers will be very short and I think we have a, a duty of care to the playing group to be encouraging them to, and it may not be that they're doing a huge amount, but that they're putting plans in place, having something that takes their mind away from the rugby pitch so that actually when they come back to it, they feel really fresh and energised. They're not sort of focused on the last session and they just go, well, that go well what's going to happen with selection? They're actually getting their head in their books for their studies or they're, they're going off and doing a little bit of part-time work. That's my philosophy. I was at an event with a guy from the ECB who had coached over in Australia, actually, women there, and he was saying it's almost an unpopular thing he can't say because he's a man in women's sport, but that he doesn't want the women's game to emulate the men's and to end up with so... that They're yeah. so focused because yeah. he said then you spend the next five years trying to unpick them when they come out of the bubble, as you say, through injury or non-selection, what have you, then how do we make... How do we build them back into human beings when they've lost all of that? And he'd love to see a way where women can be well-paid and, and properly paid and supported with S&C and everything else, yeah. but also 
also, as you say, maintain a life that sits out of the sport. And I loved his openness of like, yeah, that's that should be our ambition, really, isn't it? But it's hard because the men have got it. It's hard not to say we want the same. Yeah. That doesn't mean to say it's the best thing just because it's what men have done before. No, exactly. I think there's a, a, a real part of it is learning the lessons from what, what's happened in perhaps the men's game and of course all that's going on at the moment and actually think we don't need to do the same thing we can how do we have sustainable professionalism that looks after the the person that is the player and it could be things that are more you know you're, you're networking well you're aware that you might be having a conversation with Sue Anstis who might introduce you to so and so who then might be a future contact for you so sort of knowing that as well is um yeah I think really important Get them all into the Women's Sport Collective. That's what we're about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so finally, uh, looking back at your experiences as an elite rugby player and a, and a coach, what excites you most about the next few years for, for women's rugby and for women's sport more broadly? What excites me most? Um, the prospect of standing in Twickenham Stadium with 80,000 people as ticket buyers to watch the women's game, that excites me enormously. I stood next to Sue Day at the England-USA game down in Sandy Park in Exeter. Her pride at seeing thousands of people turning up for an international game, but knowing how that is such a goal for the sport. I mean, obviously, we've got England-France at Twickenham next year. I, you know... I don't know what the goal is in terms of is it 30,000? It's not high enough. Go? It's not high enough. Let's I think we should it. go for the. <laughs> let's do it. Let's yeah. say it now. Yeah. I'm so with you there. I think it is a, a lovely ambition to, to have to fill it. April 29th, anybody yeah. buy tickets now? Absolutely. And also, it's those rugby supporters support their local club so that we start to see more revenue coming in through the gate for the women's domestic game. And, and a lot of clubs are already doing fairly well with that. But I think with some like ongoing and sustained marketing and, and really sort of looking after that supporter base, the women's game will start to bring in a little bit more income as well, which will help with the programmes that are being delivered. So I'm very excited about the future for all women's sport. I mean, we, you know, we are, we do feel like we're at a bit of a moment in history with, you know, the success of the football team and, you know, the cricket team and obviously the hockey team. So within particularly team sports, women's team sports, it's been quite incredible. And they all, you know, I know from the, the hockey squad, they're all asking how the Red Rose is doing. You know, it's so exciting. Did you watch again? You know, and they all support each other, which is brilliant to see. It's always such a pleasure to talk to Emma. So humble, yet so brilliant at what she does. Head over to fearlesswomen.co.uk to find out about all the incredible game changers I've spoken to for this and the previous series. As well as listening to all the podcasts on the website, you can also find out more about The Collective, a free network for all women working in sport. You can sign up for the Fearless Women newsletter, which highlights the developments in women's sport. And there's more about my book, Game On, The Unstoppable Rise of Women's Sport. The Game Changers is free to listen to across all podcast platforms. So please give us a follow so you don't miss future episodes. And if you have time for a quick review or rating, we'd be so grateful as it really helps us reach new listeners. Thank you again to Sport England for backing the Game Changers through the National Lottery and to Sam Walker at What Goes On Media, who does a great job as our executive producer. Finally, thank you to my brilliant colleague, Kate Hannon, who does so much behind the scenes at Fearless Women. Do come and say hello on social media, where you'll find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram at Sue Anstis. The Game Changers. Fearless Women in sport.